This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are beginning today a series on spiritual gifts, and uh, we're to, to cover that topic, what we're going to do is work our way through, verse by verse, through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is the longest section in the Bible uh, dealing with the topic of spiritual gifts. I mean, there's nothing even close to it um, in terms of dealing with that subject. So we're going to work our way through there. But before we get to 1 Corinthians 12, I didn't want to just uh, pop into the middle of a book. Uh, we're going to do two messages out of chapter 1, uh, because this will lay a foundation of a little bit about what was going on in Corinth. Paul's not just writing a generic teaching about spiritual gifts. There's a context. There's reasons. He's addressing uh, various issues and problems there. So we want to look at the background of what's happening in the book, that, which really sets the table uh, for what happens in chapters 12 through 14. And we will talk a little bit about spiritual gifts today, because actually he brings it up within the first uh, seven verses or so. So it comes up out of the chute. Uh, so you'll certainly hear something about that today, but we're not going to uh, dive into the details of that for a couple weeks. So uh, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we come today uh, hungering, thirsting for you to speak to us from your word. And so we posture ourselves as those who are needy. We need to be nourished and fed and strengthened and sustained by your spirit through your word. And we ask you to speak to us today. And Lord, anyone here who's never heard your voice that doesn't know you as their Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes and grant them uh, the surprising gift of new life today. So Lord, speak to us and teach us and change us. For your glory, we pray. Amen. 
The verses that we just read are, um, they're, they're surprising. They're really a most surprising introduction to the book of Corinthians. They're, they're surprising because of the church that was receiving this letter. And if you know anything at all about the Corinthians, what you probably know is they were messed up, significantly messed up. I was thinking, um, the church in Galatia seems to be dealing with the most dangerous problem. They're losing a vision of grace and the gospel, so they probably are dealing with the most dangerous problem. But the church that is just broadly messed up the most, across the board, having the most problems in the New Testament, has to be the Corinthian church. Um, and so a brief survey of the church reveals just how serious a problem they were having. First of all, there are divisions in this church. We'll look at this next week. There are divisions. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 make it clear that folks were rallying behind certain leaders. They were divided up into teams. And so some were following Paul, some were following Apollos, some were following Peter, some were following Christ. Why wasn't everybody on that team? I can't explain that to you. But that they're really divided and you know, sort of separating, waving banners of the leader that they followed within the church and doing so openly. So they were a divided church. Also, this church lacked an appreciation for Paul, who is writing to them. Now, this comes out more clearly in 2 Corinthians, but it's here as well. Paul founded this church. You can read about that in Acts 18. So Paul was the founder of this church. He spent 18 months with them establishing this church. And now he's writing this letter to them about two and a half or three years later, scholars say. And there are problems. They are not impressed with Paul, the the founder, who was with them for 18 months, laying a foundation in their church. Uh, They don't think he is wise. They don't think he is a capable speaker. They're enamored with rhetoric and wisdom. Uh, sort of like our culture would be uh, enamored. We're not enamored with wisdom or rhetoric, but we are enamored with sort of self-help gurus. And so that might be a comparable uh, comparison. And so they don't see Paul that way. And uh, they don't really see their need for Paul. Uh, the guy who's an apostle to the Gentiles, they don't really need him. And so they are a proud church. They are an ungrateful church the man who laid the foundations and was used by God to plant the church. It's a church with immorality in it. There's sexual immorality in the church that is beyond what is even culturally accepted in Corinth, which is a decadent culture. Um, it'd be like saying, boy, what they're doing, it's, it's worse than what's acceptable in Las Vegas or San Francisco or New York or something like that. Uh, there's a situation in the church in chapter 5 where uh, a man is, uh, um, is having relations with his father's wife. And rather than dealing with it, they're proud of the freedom that they have in Christ to behave that way. So they are a morally lax church. They're divided, they're proud, they're ungrateful, they're morally lax. There are lawsuits in the church. Chapter 6, Paul says, look, you guys get into fights with one another. Isn't there anybody in the church that could just sit down and help you work things out? But you want to take two Christians before the civil authorities who are unbelievers and fight out issues 
in court? What kind of a witness is that? He says, would you just, wouldn't it be better just to be defrauded? In other words, isn't it better just to get ripped off than as Christians, you know, not try to have other Christians help mediate and work it out and just go to the court of law? So they are a vengeful church. They're taking out their ought on one another in court. The Lord's Supper uh, is a, is really a travesty in this church. They do the Lord's Supper around a meal. Now, that's a good thing. So they have a meal together. But what Paul says is the rich people get there first with all the food, so it's like a potluck, and the rich people bring, I don't know, steak and lobster and stuff. The poor people don't have anything to eat or to bring. So the rich people feast, and the poor people get nothing. And their communion services are BYOB. So people are getting drunk at communion. He literally says people are getting wasted during the communion service, and he says that your services do more harm than good. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and it's it's worse than if they were just would just not celebrate the Lord's Supper. Their services do more harm than good. They are an irreverent church to get drunk while celebrating the body and blood of the Lord and excluding the poor is horrendous. They are self-indulgent. Uh, the Bible forbids drunkenness, um, but at least people in the church, if they are going to get drunk, please do that on your own time and not at communion. They're a self-indulgent church. There's spiritual gift abuses in this church. They don't appreciate a variety of gifts. They are enamored with one gift, the gift of tongues. And so when they gather, and we'll look at this carefully, but it appears that the Sunday gatherings are a tongues fest. People just all stand up speaking in tongues. No one's interpreting. No one's understanding. And they, they view this as the height of spirituality. Um, they're not concerned for one another in the body. They're just concerned for their private spiritual experiences. And so that's why they speak in tongues without interpretation, um, because they are a selfish church that gathers for personal spiritual benefit without concern for the others gathered. And it's a church with theological error as well. At the end of the book, in chapter 15, so 12 through 14 are spiritual gifts. Chapter 15, Paul addresses them on the resurrection because there are some people in the church that aren't believing uh, in the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul has to say, look, if people aren't resurrected, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. And if Jesus wasn't resurrected, none of us are saved and actually we're to be pitied. And so they have people not even believing in the resurrection. It is a doctrinally confused church. So here's the Corinthian church. They are divided. They are proud. They are ungrateful. They are morally lax. They are vengeful. They are irreverent. They are self-indulgent. They are selfish. And they are doctrinally confused. Put that on your website. I mean, some of you may be sort of church shopping, visiting around. I'm guessing that none of the things I just mentioned is what you're looking for in a church. I'm guessing those didn't make it on the list of values that you were looking for in a church. No one on their website says, welcome to our church. This is what we're all about. No one would. So how does Paul address this most messed up church? I mean, you would expect Paul just to say, uh, dear Corinth, we're done. I would expect like a breakup letter. You know, <laughs> it was great being with you. We had a wonderful time. And can we just be friends? Because I'm having nothing relational to do with you people again. I mean, that would be justified. A letter that starts off, does anybody remember what I taught you? Hello, you folks, I was with you 18 months. I never encouraged this stuff. I taught on the resurrection. 
I was not getting drunk at communion. I was not endorsing incestuous relationships. Could you people please remember, and, and they don't even appreciate Paul. After all I did for you, I introduced you to Christ. And this is how you guys carry on once I leave? I mean, you'd expect him, verse 1, stop the immorality. Verse 2, enough with the tongues. Verse 3, yes, there is a resurrection. Verse 4, get back with me when you've straightened things out. And until then, your friend Paul. That's what I would expect. That would be a reasonable letter from my point of view. But how does Paul begin? Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Paul is thankful for people that are not thankful for him. Paul is grateful to God for people that are immature. Paul is grateful to God for people that are selfish. Paul is grateful to God for people that are arrogant, worldly, contentious, irritating. I'm Paul, I'm irritated. They're irritating people, and yet Paul is grateful for them. Paul is grateful for people who sin, who have not made it to heaven yet, who are not in glorified bodies, who are not free from sin in the new heavens and the new earth, as we talked about last week. That's what we talked about last week, the new heavens and the new earth. Paul is thankful for people that have not arrived there yet. Paul thanks God for them. Now, Paul doesn't have a Pollyanna worldview, meaning that everything is happy. Just think happy thoughts. So he's not writing a letter that says, boy, they're really bad, but let's just be happy. He's not doing that because there's going to be a lot of correction in this letter. So it's not Pollyanna. And when you get further in the letter, you'll see that he's not just ignoring problems and putting a smile on everybody's face and everybody's special no matter what they're doing. That's not his attitude. He's, there are grievous things happening and he's going to address them with clarity. He's also not thanking God for them because this is just sort of the thing you do before you slam someone. So this isn't like he's setting the ball and he's going to come in and spike it and kill them all in a minute. But this is the setup to draw them in. What, what, Paul? Oh, he likes us. And then wham! This is sincere. Paul is writing sincerely. He really does give thanks to God for them. Sincere words. How can Paul give thanks for these folks? How can God thank God? How can Paul thank God for this church? Read the rest of the verse. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul thanks God because God has given grace to these folks. Paul thanks God because God has saved these folks. Paul thanks God because God has drawn these individuals to himself and has birthed this church. This is important to note. When Paul sees Corinth, he doesn't first see a mess. He first sees Christ and his work to save a people. When Paul sees Corinth, he sees them through the eyes of God's grace. 
And so he is thankful because God has acted on them in the past. God is acting upon them currently, and God will act upon them in the future. He thanks God really in three ways, for past grace, for present grace, and for future grace. Those are the three areas I'd like to look at briefly this morning. Paul thanks God for them because he can see the grace of God upon them and within them, both in their past and their present and in their future. First of all, past grace. Paul, if you read his letters... Uh, Paul the Apostle lives with an awareness of God's grace to him. He never gets uh, very distant from the reality that God radically saved him and came looking for him when he was not looking for God. Look how he starts the letter. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Excuse me. Now, he's certainly asserting his authority from verse 1. He's certainly making a statement of authority that Christ chose Paul, Christ called Paul, uh, God did so, um, so that he would be an apostle that is a sent one of Jesus Christ. So he certainly is establishing his authority from the beginning because he's going to need to remind them of the relationship he has with them and the role he plays with them on behalf of the Lord. But he is also acknowledging from the very beginning that it is the will of God. It is God that called him. Paul called by the will of God. He describes himself in light of God's grace. God called him. He was on the road to Damascus persecuting Christians, and God assaulted him. God radically grabbed hold of him, blinded him. Um, and called him to be one who would go to the Gentiles and take the gospel, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. So he, his calling from God was an act of grace. It was God arresting him by the Spirit, giving him new life internally, and changing the direction of his life so that he moves from persecutor of the church to apostle of Christ, sent to take the gospel to those who don't know him and plant churches. So Paul views himself as one who's been a recipient of grace. And he uses the church that way as well. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. He's writing to the church. The Greek word for church, I mean, it's a word that's familiar. Um, Oftentimes it's used, uh, uh, even for those of us who are not proficient in Greek, it's a word ekklesia. That's the word for church, and it means called out. It means the called out ones, the company that are of people called out. It is people who are called out of, uh, out of darkness into light, out of the world into relationship with God. So the church at Corinth, he is addressing those who are called out in Corinth to be God's special possession. They are the church of God. Paul doesn't own them. The elders at Corinth don't own them. The congregation doesn't own itself. God owns this church. Why? Because God called the people to himself. That's the very nature of the church. And so when Paul looks at the church at Corinth, he sees them as the called out ones of God. And thus he is able to see them as God's treasured possession and not an irritant. They're not an irritant because they're God's people called out by him. God initiated grace and saved these people. 
And so when Paul thinks of the Corinthians, he doesn't start verse 1 with deficiencies. He starts with God and his calling. First of all, on Paul, he's aware he's been called. Secondly, on their calling. They are the church, the called out ones. Look what he goes on to say. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus, verse 2, called to be saints together. God has acted upon them in mercy, and they are called to be saints means holy ones, those who are set apart together. So he calls them out of death, out of darkness, puts them together to be joined together as holy ones, set apart to God. This is all of his language is speaking about what God has done for them. They're sanctified. That is, they're made holy. They're set apart in Christ Jesus. They're called to be saints together. So when he thinks about them, he just stacks up phrases that have to do with what God has done for this church, what God has done in individuals' lives, how God has acted upon them in the past. Look what he says in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you. When we view people primarily through a lens of how God has saved us from what we deserve and how God has saved them from what they deserve. When we view people through the lens of God's mercy, it affects how we relate with them. It affects our attitude towards them. When we're aware that we've received grace and others have received grace, it's intended to foster gratitude in our hearts not self-righteousness, not judgmentalism. That's why Paul doesn't relate self-righteously. That's why Paul is not relating with a judgmental attitude towards them because Paul can look at himself and say, God has acted upon me. I am what I am by the grace of God. And God has acted upon them. He's not done with them. God in the past acted upon them, gave them good news, gave them new life, called them to be his people, called them to be joined together as saints. And so Paul can celebrate the work of God. He, he doesn't have a self-righteous view. In chapter 4, he's actually going to say, what do we have? What do any of us have that we've not received? That's Paul's worldview. That's his definition of life. What do I have that I haven't been given by God? Where do I have any room to boast? Where do I have any room to look condescendingly upon others? Where do I have any room to self-righteously judge other people? I don't have anything that I haven't been given. My eyes have only been opened because when I was going to persecute Christians, God came and grabbed my heart and turned me around when I was not looking for him or pursuing him. Just the opposite. I was persecuting him and he saved me. What do I have? that I've earned. It's all been given to me. And so when there's that attitude, we relate with one another differently. Paul views them as those who've received grace and gives thanks. This is convicting to me. I mean, think about Christians in your life for a minute. Think about those who are around you. Any, any Christians, and why don't you just look at me right now, don't look side by side on this question. Any Christians that you find irritating... Right here, not, not to, do not look at your neighbor. Stiff neck, right ahead, just look straight ahead. Any Christians that you find irritating? Any Christians that you don't like because they're self-righteous? Uh, that's a red flag. If you're judging someone else because they're self-righteous, that could be a sign that you're self-righteous. <laughs> Anybody that you don't like too well, that you're angry at, that you're bothered by, that you're impatient with, 
Paul had tons of data and reason to be impatient with these folks, but God had worked in his heart and given him a different view of them. When I am impatient and angry and sinfully irritated and bothered by other people, judgmental, self-righteous towards them, I do not have God's perspective that when I see them, I must first see them as someone that God has acted upon and saved, someone God loves, someone God has chosen as a treasure for himself, a people for himself. When I first see them as an irritant to me, I have lost the perspective that Paul has in this passage that God has given him, that God gives us by his mercy. And the answer is not for them to change all their behavior and I'll be okay with them. The answer is for me to have my perspective changed by the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no time to bring correction or anything like that. He's going to do that for, oh, I don't know, roughly uh, 14 chapters or so. So there's going to be plenty of that in here. But it's done from a heart of seeing God at work. He's aware of God's past grace. He's aware of God's present grace in them as well. And this is where the shock factor comes in. Because I find this introduction shocking. And here's what's shocking about it. That Paul gives thanks and points out specifically something that has gone awry in their midst as something that he is grateful to God for namely spiritual gifts. Look at verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is thanking God that God is at work with them through spiritual gifts. And not only that, but they don't lack any spiritual gifts. They have an abundance of spiritual gifts. And he's thanking God for that. And yet, in chapters 12 through 14, he will need to take three chapters, the largest chunk of material in the entire book, to adjust them for abusing spiritual gifts. And so if the primary problem that he's going to address is their misuse of spiritual gifts... How can he start off saying, I thank God that you have an abundance. You're not lacking any spiritual gift. The work of Christ is confirmed among you. Because he can see God at work even where human frailty, sin, weakness has distorted something that God is doing. He can still see God at work and he can still thank God in the midst of it. And this will become a lot clearer when we get in. We'll come back to this statement. When we get into 12 through 14, We'll come back and say, remember what Paul said? They didn't lack any spiritual gift. He says, in every way, thanking God, <coughs> grace was given you, excuse me, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. He then says that you're not lacking any spiritual gift. This all speech and all knowledge are likely categories, broad categories of gifting. When we get in to 1 Corinthians 12 and he lists a number of gifts, we'll see that some of them have to do with knowledge and others of them have to do with speech. So he is speaking likely of spiritual gifts there. He even says that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, verse 6, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we read that a spiritual gift or a demonstration of a spiritual gift is not a true sign of conversion. Jesus says that. There will be people that will be judged that they will claim, didn't we do this, didn't we do that, and he'll say, I never knew you. Um, so it's not a sure sign 
that someone is genuinely converted because they exercise some kind of even miraculous spiritual gift. However, in this case, Paul says it is for them. So Paul has the authority to say that, inspired by God, that for them, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in some ways through the spiritual gifts that they were uh, exercising, even though they were exercising them inappropriately in some ways. So God has saved you by, your, by his grace. God has granted you gifts by his grace such that you're not lacking any gifts. So gratitude for the gifts of God is where Paul starts with them. They may abuse some of the gifts, but they are still gifts from God. Still gifts from God. They're still genuine. That's going to help us when we get to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, because some people want to read those chapters and say, well, it must not even be real. I mean, they are so messed up. They are so selfish in their inclination to exercise gifts. How could that even be real? But Paul is saying here, he's not saying that they are fake. He's not saying that they are motivated by Satan or they're satanic copies. They're the real deal. They're just being used uh, inappropriately and selfishly for personal gain and personal attention. Excuse me. It appears like, and so they are not, uh, they're not governing them in an orderly way. If they were concerned, <clears throat> if they were concerned that everyone in the church was built up, they would have order when they gather. But because they're not concerned that everyone's built up, they're only concerned that individuals have a spiritual experience and a spiritual high. They're not governed well, and so they're abused. They're also given over attention to a singular gift, tongues, and deny the importance of other gifts. And so he has to balance them out. But it's still a work of God that is in their midst. God is at work even though there are lots of problems. God is at work, even though they've taken a good thing and used it for selfish ends. God is at work, even though they're messing up. And out of everything he could say, he highlights spiritual gifts. That's a shocker. He can thank God for the spiritual gifts. This has application for us beyond the topic of spiritual gifts. I mean, when we observe a significant fault in a, in a spouse, in a child, in a friend, do we start again with an awareness that God is at work in their lives? There's a problem with the tongues deal, but I thank God that you have every spiritual gift and he's confirming his reality through these spiritual gifts. He starts with gratitude. He starts with an awareness of God. Do we start when we see a fault in another may have nothing to do with spiritual gifts. When we see, when we have gratitude for, when we see a fault in another, do we start with an awareness of God and his work in their lives? Can we thank God that he is at work or do we just see criticism? Do we just see failure? Do we just see fault? And and it's really what's our starting place. If we are in a place, given our relationship, if we're in a place to bring correction, do we do so motivated with a foundation of gratitude to God for choosing them past grace, gratitude to God for working in them present tense, like the spiritual gifts in Corinth, so that when we come to bringing a constructive, redemptive, 
criticism. It's based on love. It's based on gratitude. It's based on I'm coming over here with you alongside of you rather than standing over here pointing out your faults from a high self-righteous place. Or am I with you? We are recipients of grace. We are in need. We are sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. God's going to help us. God is at work in your life. But there's some adjustments I think he wants to make. That's how Paul relates. Are we aware of grace in our spouse or their failures when there's a repeated pattern of failure, of sin, of weakness, whatever it is, in a spouse, in a child, in a friend? Are we, are we first and foremost aware of God's activity in their life? Criticism detached from this kind of gra- this kind of gratitude that's based on grace criticism that's detached from seeing god at work seeing god's grace towards someone seeing god at work in me seeing god having saved me seeing god having saved them criticism detached from grace is toxic criticism detached from grace is like it's like taking a person and putting them in acid It just eats away. It's not fruitful. It doesn't change. It doesn't give life. It's destructive and it tears down. It doesn't edify and it doesn't build up. And so that's when, Paul, ultimately things are going to work out. It's going to take a couple letters for things to work out. But ultimately things are going to work out with the Corinthians and I don't think it's speculation, or it's, I don't, it is speculation. I don't think it's inappropriate speculation to say that the reason ultimately I think there's a restoring of their relationship and a, and, and a, and they begin to respond to Paul's word from the Lord. First of all, it is from the Lord. It's inerrant. It's the Spirit. But the vehicle that brought it to them, they, they, they ultimately had to know Paul's gracious approach. I mean, I could see him looking back at this years later after everything's sorted out and go, I can't believe he, do you see what he said to us to begin with? He recognized God at work in the spiritual gifts, and we were crazy. I can't even believe that. But he was kind to us. He was gracious. He saw God calls, God's call on us. So how do you view those around you? Is there a gratefulness or is there a self-righteousness that just focuses on deficiency? How about the way you view and the way I view, the way we view our community groups? Does our attitude and does our participation reflect gratitude for those he's joined us with? Or does it just reflect, man, these people are all messed up, you know, (laughs) unlike me, you know. Uh, They may be thinking the same thing about you, by the way. So is it... You know, these are imperfect people, and I'm an imperfect person joined together, but God's at work in us. We had a long way to go, but God is at work in us. Some of us are legalistic. Some of us take license, and we're too loose in areas, but God's thrown us together to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by the grace of God together and God is at work. Are you more aware of the people in your group, the leader of your group where he or she needs to change? Are you aware of God's prior work on them, God's current work in them? 
And are others hearing that from me? That's a question as well. It's not just what am I thinking. Paul's saying it. So does my wife, my children, people in my small group, my friends, people that I don't even know that well, do they hear from me a heart of faith towards God and thanks towards God for them? That's what Paul says. I thank God for you because grace was given you in Christ Jesus. Do they feel that? Or do they feel from me, my wife, my children, the people in my small group, do they feel just at times, you know, I'm, I'm just seeking to tolerate you. Or I'm very aware of what's wrong with you and how it has been wrong with you and what's not changing, by the way, very quickly after all of these years that I've known you. Sometimes the same type of critique can be brought, but there's the attitude and the heart behind it makes all the difference. A heart of grace, a heart of gratitude, a heart of looking towards God, to God as a fellow sinner, a heart of hope for another person. You could say the exact same thing, maybe a different tone of voice, but you could say the exact same words, and one brings life, and God speaks, and there's growth and change, and the other, it just, it, it causes a person just to shrink under the shrillness of our criticism, because the heart of love and gratitude and grace is not there, because we do not see God and his activity upon them. We only see their failures. What about our church? I mean, it's pretty encouraging at times to read Corinth because, I mean, I've led some meetings that weren't good, but I don't think a lot of them, God said, that meeting was more harmful than good. You guys shouldn't even be meeting together. So I don't think we're having those kind of meetings. See me afterwards if we are, because I want to get that right, if they're, they're more harm than good. So sometimes I look at it and go, wow, you know what? God's really done a lot in us we don't have, you know, uh, wild things happening quite like what they have happening, but we got our own issues. But when we look at the church, do we look at the way Paul sees? Paul sees the church in a Christ-centered way. God sees, Paul sees what has God done for these people, and what is he doing for these people, and how is he even working in their weaknesses, spiritual gifts, how is he working even there, And so he's able to thank God for them. When I view our church, when you view your church, whether it's this one or if you're a guest here today, your church, which is another one, do you have that kind of attitude? I'm thinking about God. When I see the church, I see, first of all, Christ and his work. That's where where I go first. And we work down from there. Our group of churches, our network of churches, Sovereign Grace Ministries, how do we view our group of churches? How do we view other churches in our city around here? I'm talking about churches that preach the go- Christian churches that preach the gospel. How do we view them? How do we talk about them? How do we think about them? This is informative. Here's a wonderful quote from a guy named David Pryor who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. I was impacted by this quote. This is what he said. The one fact most people have at their fingertips concerning the Corinthian church is that it was a mess, full of problems, sins, division, heresy. It was, in this sense, no different from any modern church. The church is a fellowship of sinners before it is a fellowship of saints. We need to register this primary truth. Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true 
of the church. That disciplined statement of faith is rarely made in local churches. The warts are examined and lamented, but often there is no vision of what God has already done in Christ. His, that is Paul's, confidence in the church at Corinth is based on God's generosity and faithfulness. Listen, I can be that way. How about you? The warts are examined and lamented, but often there's no vision of what God has already done. When Paul looks at the people of Corinth, these dear Christians with all of their problems, he sees, first of all, what Christ has already done, what Christ is doing. And so the appropriate response is, I thank God for you. And very briefly, he also looks at future grace, past grace, present grace, future grace. Look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's speaking of his return, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God not only calls people at his initiative by his grace, He not only works within us by his grace, but he will sustain us till the end by his grace. And that's the promise that he gives them. Look what he says. He says, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians, guiltless before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to sustain them. He's going to change them. He's going to mature them. And their standing before God is based on what Christ has done for them in obeying the law in their place and is dying as a sacrifice in their place. So God looks at the Corinthians and he sees them through the work of Christ. And when God, when they're, when Jesus returns the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Corinthians will be declared guiltless because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we also have great hope that they will change along the way. He's not leaving them here and saying, well, it doesn't matter. Paul's not going to say, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're all justified in Christ. He's saying, yes, you're all justified in Christ, and God's going to help you change, and this is where the Lord has his finger on your church life to help you change. And here's the grace of God. He's at work. He's going to do it. So there's confidence. There's faith in the Lord. There's confidence in the Lord. But there is this statement, they will be guiltless in the day of the Lord. How is that possible? Verse 9, God is faithful. When Paul looks at messed up people, he sees the faithfulness of God. His trust and his confidence for the future is the faithfulness of God. He's not saying, I don't know if you're going to make it. I don't know about you. That's not what comes through. I mean, you can receive some critique from an older brother, a father figure like Paul who says, you're going to make it. God declares you guiltless. God is faithful. And if you feel like that person is coming at you primarily with awareness of God's grace, God's faithfulness, then there's hope in the message delivered. Paul doesn't just start in critiquing the spiritual gifts. He starts in thanking God for them with a confident statement about their future. The enduring, sustaining grace of God is what he holds out for them. That is a powerful statement. 
When I am relating with others, my small group, my church, my wife, my friend, whoever Christian, my relatives, my neighbor, whatever Christians. Now, again, we need to view lost people in a way of compassion and trusting the Lord. He's talking about Christians here. So he is talking about viewing other Christians with an attitude of God is faithful, God will sustain them, these sorts of things. When I look at those around me, and am I primarily aware not only that God acted upon them in the past to save them and call them to himself, not only that God is active in the present through their spiritual gifts in this case, God is active in the present, but I'm also looking at saying God is faithful in the future. Not some kind of sappy, you can make it. I'm not, we're not saying that. I'm saying God will sustain you. That's not the power of positive thinking and aren't we all wonderful. That's God is glorious and he's holding sinners till the very end throughout eternity. That doesn't minimize our responsibility to help them. Paul's going to help them. It's just the attitude. It's just the foundation. It's just the basis. Listen, if I can't say God is faithful to you, I don't think I can really help you. I really can't. I mean, all I can just say is get it together. Where's the gospel in that? Change. Where's the gospel in that? You're a sinner. you got problems. Fix them. Where's the gospel in that? gospel is that Jesus died for sinners and was buried and rose on the third day, defeating the power of sin and death, and that he pours out his, he rises to the right hand of the Father and pours out his Holy Spirit, and he is at work in us. He will change us as we respond to him. God is faithful to change you as you are responding and uh, responding to his work within you. God is at work in you, and now you respond to his work. God is faithful till the end. God will change you, and one day God will take you, either by your death or by his return, into his presence for eternity. That's gospel. That's hopeful. And that's the basis of all the correction Paul is going to bring in the coming chapters. That's the basis of how he looks at spiritual gifts. Some people, even when we think about spiritual gifts, some people just instantly go to problems, divisions. They think of Corinth, man. Look what spiritual gifts did there. I don't want any part of that. This is an important foundation to know. No, God really gave the spiritual gifts for a purpose. They just didn't use them pro- appropriately for his glory. But even there, there's, he's confident in God's power because God is faithful. This passage doesn't just teach us how to think about spiritual gifts This passage teaches us how to relate to people, particularly how to relate to people in their sins, in their failures, in their shortcomings, in their weaknesses, in their problems. This is a model that we relate based on how God is related to us. We relate based on how God is related to them. And when we do that, we breathe gospel air. We breathe grace to other people. And life change comes through grace as people see the Lord. We want them to be left seeing God with hope, not seeing our face and our voice with judgment and no hope. And to get to that place where I relate to people in that way on a more consistent basis, that requires grace as well. Because it's very easy to be critical. 
It's very easy to just settle into a rut of judging others from my throne. Very easy. But it takes the grace of God to move me off that and come alongside people with this vision of grace for them. May that be the case in our church in an increasing way. And may that be the case for us even as we go forward and talk more about the spiritual gifts. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 